Before I start this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shemazaki at Pexels who took the photograph, which adorns the cover art. Let's crack on. Welcome to episode 85 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Chris Kirkbride. It's been another bumper week for financial crime news again this week. A hat trick of bumper week stories across every aspect of financial crime. So let's just get on with it. As usual, I've linked all the main stories which I flag in the podcast right there in the podcast description. We'll start this week with sanctions, where in the United States, the Department of the Treasury Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, has made six designations of Iran-backed militia operating in Iraq. Link to the designations can be found in the podcast description. In Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky has issued designations against 37 Russian groups and 108 individuals. Many of those sanctioned are organizations linked to children who may be aligned with abduction. That is, the abduction of Ukrainian children from eastern Ukraine, which was taken by Russia in the early period of the invasion. This follows action taken against those associated with the abductions by other nations globally. Staying with Ukraine, there's a a bit of a story on the impact of sanctions, particularly on the aviation industry from, of all unlikely things, a cyber attack by the Ukrainian authorities on the federal, the Russian Federal Air Transport Agency, Rozovitsia. From analysis of the documents obtained during the attack, Ukraine's Defense Ministry's Principal Intelligence Directorate concludes that the industry is on the verge of collapse, their words, not mine. While I think this may be overstating it, especially given the extent of sanctions evasion by Russia's allies, there can be little doubt that the aviation sanctions, part of the broader range of sanctions against Russia since its invasion began, especially those which have been coordinated by the anti-Russian axis, must undoubtedly be having some effect on the ability to fly and maintain a fleet of aircraft. In the UK, more on the issue of control for the purposes of sanctions in Litasco SA and Dermond Oil and Gas Africa, which is a high court case from England and Wales, produced or published a couple of uh, a week or so ago. The high court awarded summary judgment in favour of Litasco, the claimant, for sums which it claimed were due under a contract for the sale of crude oil. Dermond Oil, the defendant, argued that sanctions prevented them from making payment, but the judge, Mr Justice Foxton, held that Litasco was not under the existing control of a person designated for sanctions purposes, so the payment could be made. The defendant had argued that Litasco was under the control of Russian President Vladimir Putin, which was an attempt to use the recent decision of the Court of Appeal in Minsk and PJSC National Bank Trust and another, which was, as I said, a Court of Appeal case, which we looked at in episode 79 of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. In declining to align the current case with Mintz, Mr Justice Foxton noted that in Mintz, the appellant 
was wholly owned by the Central Bank of Russia, a Russian public body, and part of the state machinery, while in the instant case, Litasco, though a wholly owned subsidiary of Luca Oil PJSC, a Russian oil company, this was not in any way comparable to the situation in the case of Mints. Link to the judgment from the commercial court is in the podcast description. Within two days of the decision in Litasco, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, the FCDO, in conjunction with the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, issued guidance on ownership and control respecting public officials. The guidance rehearses the UK financial sanctions general guidance already in the public domain. In relation to control, quotes, an entity is owned or controlled directly or indirectly by another person if any of the following circumstances is found. First, the person holds directly or indirectly more than 50% of the shares or voting rights in an entity. Secondly, the person has the right directly or indirectly to appoint or remove a majority of the board of directors of the entity. Or, it is reasonable to expect that the person would be able to ensure the affairs of the entity are conducted in accordance with the person's wishes. If any of the above criteria are met, continues the guidance, and the person who owns or controls the entity is also a designated person, then financial sanctions will also apply to that entity in its entirety, meaning these assets should also be frozen. However, quotes, Regarding government ministries, if a designated individual were a high-ranking public official serving as a government minister, the public body in which they held a leadership position would not be automatically subject to sanctions just because the minister is, is designated. And, quotes, there is no presumption on the part of the United Kingdom government that a private entity is subject to the control of a designated public official simply because that entity is based or incorporated in a jurisdiction in which that official has a leading role in economic policy or decision-making. Further evidence is required to demonstrate that the relevant official exercises control over that entity under UK sanctions regulations. Now, the link to the guidance can be found in the podcast description. In other sanctions news from the United Kingdom, during a state visit from the President of South Korea, it was announced that both countries would sign a defence agreement whereby they will agree to enforce United Nations Security Council's sanctions on North Korea through conducting joint sea patrols. As the press release provides, the DPRK relies on smugglers, that is North Korea, relies on smugglers in order to bypass international sanctions, many of which were introduced to block imports and exports, which could be used to support its nuclear weapons programme. A significant amount of this smuggling takes place in the East China Sea, where Royal Navy ships have previously deployed and captured evidence of this activity. Link to the press release is in the podcast description. And finally, on sanctions news this week, some research from the compliance firm Smart Search should make worrying reading for those concerned in law enforcement. The finding is research based on a survey of regulated firms with a finding that this year only 25% of regulated entities ensure that new customers are checked against list of designated persons for the purposes of sanctions. And the list 
of politically exposed persons or PEPs on every occasion during onboarding. Staggering, 25%, only 25%. This is a dramatic drop on the findings for the previous year, where the figure was nearer three quarters at 73%. It's a high-risk strategy for firms, that, especially where the regulatory agencies are looking to make as many examples as they possibly can do of entities which attempt in any way to step out of line when it comes to sanctions, evasion and politically exposed persons. Frankly, I would imagine that firms risk fermenting problems down the line. Still, we'll leave that one there, and I've put the link to the Smart Search website in the podcast description. Fraud news, and, well, this week's fraud news comes courtesy of the United States of America. God bless the USA. The Department of Justice has, well, it seems, been working overtime on combating fraud with a host of convictions and admissions and other things. First, Joseph Camerata of New New Jersey has been found guilty of five counts of tax evasion in relation to a fraudulent securities scheme. He's yet to be sentenced. Secondly, a former married couple has pleaded guilty to laundering the proceeds of various fraud schemes which targeted the retirement and investment accounts of their victims. Sentencing will take place next year. Thirdly, three Texans have been convicted of a scheme to defraud the Department of Labor out of $145 million by submitting fraudulent claims for prescription compound creams. Fourthly, and here we go, a bit of nostalgia. Not what it used to be. Anyway, a bit of nostalgia. COVID-19 fraud. About barely a week passes by without saying any of that. A federal, jury, uh, a federal jury in Boise, Idaho, has convicted a Georgia woman today uh, for fraudulently obtaining and misusing $338,958 of support wrongly claimed under the Paycheck Protection Program, which the Small Business Administration guaranteed under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act. Sentencing for that takes place in February next year. Also, a Texan has been indicted for allegedly devising a scheme to secure funds made available through the Paycheck Protection Program and the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, which were designed to provide relief to small business owners. The indictment alleges that the accused secured the funds by making misrepresentations about the number of employees employed, as well as the average monthly payroll paid out by various entities which he controlled. In securing the Restaurant Revitalization Fund money, it also reports that the accused made representations about the annual revenue for one of these entities. Based on these representations, the accused, allegedly through the various entities, received millions of dollars. He then spent the funds on various unauthorized items, including real estate, real estate vehicles and retail investment products. The final story, again from... The U.S. Department of Justice is news that the department has filed a civil forfeiture action to recover cryptocurrency alleged to be the proceeds of a pig butchering fraud scheme. This is a quote from the press release for those not familiar with the term pig butchering. In a pig butchering scheme, scammers obtain funds from victims using manipulative tactics. The scammer establishes a level of trust with the victim in online communications and then entices the victim into investing in a fraudulent cryptocurrency scheme. 
Often the victim is enticed to make additional payments before realising they're a victim of fraud. The amount claimed is 204,315.87 Tether and 18.9649 Bitcoin with a current estimated value of approximately 900,000 US dollars. Link to all the press releases in all of those cases can be found in the podcast description. More on fraud this week and I'll wager a good wedge of it will be from the US Department of Justice. Now, that's it for fraud. What about money laundering? Well, actually, there's been... It was actually, no, it was quite quiet on the money laundering front. And then there was a big uptick in money laundering news, particularly with the Binance announcement, which I'll come to in a moment. And it was slim pickings at the start of the week, but whoa, it certainly picked up. Um, a very big story from the US, as I said. But first, we'll start with some interesting news from the European Union, where the continued ripples from Chelsea FC's ownership under Roman Abramovich have caused the bloc's policymakers to reflect on the operation of anti-money laundering rules. Amid discontent with some ownership models, some members of the European Parliament are looking to have football included in AML rules which operate in the bloc. While the Commission is not convinced, so this may not have any legs, it does raise an interesting point about the complex arrangements under which some football clubs are owned and the use, for example, of offshore financial centres to funnel payments to help evade financial fair play rules which are imposed by UEFA. Keep a close eye on this one. Financial fair play has been in the news a lot particularly in the United Kingdom, well, England and Wales at the moment anyway. Now, that big news I was talking about, well, it is, of course, the actions which have been taken against Binance, the world's largest virtual currency agency, following its guilty plea to charges of money laundering and sanctions evasion. The joint action taken by the US Department of the Treasury with the assistance of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, and the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, the other agency is the IRS, Criminal Investigation Unit. As the US Department of the Treasury press release provides, Binance settled with FinCEN and OFAC for violations of the Bank Secrecy Act and apparent violations of multiple sanctions programs. The violations include failure to implement programs to prevent and report suspicious transactions with terrorists, including Hamas al-Qassam brigades, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, al-Qaeda, and the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. Also, ransomware attackers, money launderers, and other criminals, as well as matching trades between US users and those in sanctioned jurisdictions like Iran, North Korea, Syria, and the Crimea region of Ukraine. By failing to comply with the anti-money laundering regime and sanctions obligations, Binance enabled a range of illicit actors to transact freely on the platform. Now, The US authorities have gone heavy on Binance, which indicates the gravity of the offences. The quotation continues, FinCEN's settlement agreement assesses a civil money penalty of $3.4 billion US dollars. It imposes a five-year monitorship and requires significant compliance undertakings, including to ensure Binance's complete exit from the United States. 
OFAC's settlement agreement assesses a penalty of $968 million and requires Binance to abide by a series of robust sanctions compliance obligations, including full cooperation with the monitorship overseen by FinCEN. To ensure that Binance fulfills the terms of its settlement, including that it does not offer services to US persons, and to ensure that illicit activity is addressed, the Treasury will retain access to books, records and systems of Binance for a period of five years through a monitor. The $3.4 billion figure is the largest penalty in US Treasury and FinCEN history. There's so much information on this available on the web, including press releases from the US Department of the Treasury, the US Department of Justice, as well as published comments from senior people like the Attorney General Merrick Garland and Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco. These, as well as the copy document of the settlement and the Department of the Treasury enforcement release, can all be found in the podcast description. Before I end this bit on Binance, there is an interesting addendum to this story, and it's been reported widely, and I saw this on the BBC, that it's thought that um, customers of Binance have withdrawn around a billion dollars in investments from the company since the news was announced earlier this week. Now, the final bit of money laundering news this week, we can all breathe again after that, is from the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, in conjunction with the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or the OECD. They have released a joint report on the misuse of citizenship and residency by investment. These programs are frequently operated by governments granting citizenship, CBI as it's known, or residency, RBI, so citizenship by investment or residency by investment, to foreign investors permitting the bypassing of typical immigration processes. In some jurisdictions, these are referred to as golden passports. Now, there is a genuine concern about golden passports, and it's been voiced variously in recent months and years. Anyway, this is what the press release issued by the FATF provides. In response to the FATF minister's call in April 2022 for greater focus on corruption, the FATF completed a joint project with the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development that explores the money laundering and financial crime risks associated with citizenship by investment and residency by investment programs, including risks related to foreign bribery, fraud and corruption, and their impact on public integrity, tax and migration. Properly managed CBI or RBI programs can benefit both host countries and individuals, but in practice, such programs bring significant risks of money laundering, fraud and other forms of misuse. Link to the press release, the report and a useful YouTube video can be found in the podcast description. Now, to bribery and corruption news, and there's a good wedge of this too. We'll start with an interesting one, and it's news that the Saudi Arabian and Russian governments have agreed a memorandum of understanding which is aimed at combating corruption and enhancing cooperation between the two nations, especially in combating cross-border corruption, exchanging information on corruption, and the development and strengthening of the institutional capacities of both nations. Okay, I'll leave that one there. Nothing much more to do on it other than check the calendar to see whether it's April or not. Anyway, in the US, the former manager at General Motors 
has been convicted by a jury of conspiracy to solicit and receive a $5 million bribe from a South Korean company in return from a, for a promise to deliver a contract in excess of $100 million for various car parts. Hyong Nam So will be sentenced in May 2024, and the link to the press release is in the podcast description. Staying in the US, the Department of Justice has settled an action against two British reinsurance brokers, Tizers Insurance Brokers Limited, which I'll refer to as Tizers, and H.W. Wood Limited, or H.W. Wood, in respect of breaches of the US Foreign Corrupt Practices Act 1977 for bribes which the companies paid to officials at Ecuadorian state-owned insurance companies. Tizers will pay a $36 million penalty, criminal penalty, and an administrative forfeiture of approximately $10.5 million, while H.W. Wood agreed, quotes, based on the application of the U.S. sentencing guidelines, that the appropriate criminal penalty is $22.5 million, and approximately $2.3 million is forfeitable to the United States. However, due to H.W. Wood's financial condition, and demonstrated inability to pay the penalty calculated under the U.S. sentencing guidelines, H.W. Wood and the department agreed, consistent with the department's inability to pay guidance, that the appropriate criminal penalty is $508,000, and that H.W. Wood is unable to pay the forfeiture amount. The link to the full press release to that is in the podcast description. Now, Ukraine is a recurrent theme of this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast, and so it is with bribery and corruption. First, Ukraine's parliament has approved an increase of 300 in the headcount of the National Anti-Corruption Bureau, or NABU. That increases the number of people there to 1,000. The increase will be phased over three years, ending in 2026. This news may not be a moment too soon, since it's been widely reported this week that NABU has identified an instance of alleged crypto-bribery, the first instance of its kind in the country. The alleged recipient is a lawmaker who is a member of Parliament's Anti-Corruption Committee. The other news from the Ukrainian Parliament is that two anti-corruption bills currently before Parliament only one of which has the approval of the G7 countries' ambassadors. The bills aim to improve the independence of the Specialised Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office. Now, before the final piece of news this week on bribery and corruption, just a couple of other bits just to mop up first, to Indonesia, where the authorities have named Furli Bahuri, the head of the country's Corruption Eradication Commission, as a suspect in the extortion of money from the country's former agriculture minister. Second story, West Indian cricketer Marlon Samuels has been banned from cricket for six years for breaching an anti-corruption code. The punishment, announced by the International Cricket Council, the ICC, relates to a failure to disclose the receipt of any gift, payment, hospitality or other benefit that could bring him into disrepute, as well as the receipt of hospitality worth $750 or more. And finally, on bribery and corruption news this week, the International Monetary Fund's Executive Board has completed its first reviews under the Extended Credit Facility and Extended Fund Facility arrangements for Papua New Guinea. In relation to anti-corruption, the review provides, quotes, 
The governance and anti-corruption frameworks have been enhanced, including the appointment of Commissioner and Deputy Commissioners of the Independent Commission Against Corruption. The authorities are encouraged to provide sufficient resources for the Independent Commission Against Corruption to become fully operational and should keep on fostering greater transparency and accountability. The link to the press release is in the podcast description. Now, before we head on to this week's roundup of cyber attack news, a bit of market abuse news to detain us for a relatively short period. In the United Kingdom, the Financial Conduct Authority has censured NMC Health PLC, which is in administration, for market abuse by misleading the market about its debt. As the press release provides, between March 2019 and February 2020, NMC published a series of financial statements and several clarification announcements which contained materially inaccurate information about its debt position. NMC had been operating dual sets of accounting records. The financial statements disclosed publicly misled investors by understating its debts by as much as $4 billion. As it is anticipated that no funds will remain after creditor claims have been met, the FCA has imposed a censure rather than a financial penalty which would reduce the funds available to creditors. Link to the press release and the final notice can be found in the podcast description. In the United States, the Securities and Exchange Commission has commenced enforcement action against Payward Inc. and Payward Ventures Inc., known colloquially as Kraken, with operating Kraken's crypto trading platform as an unregistered securities exchange, broker, dealer and clearing agency. Quotes, in September 2018, Kraken made hundreds of millions of dollars unlawfully facilitating the buying and selling of crypto asset securities. The SEC alleges that Kraken intertwines the traditional services of an exchange, broker, dealer and clearing agency without having registered any of those functions with the Commission as required by law. Kraken's alleged failure to register these functions has deprived investors of significant protections, including inspection by the SEC, record-keeping requirements and safeguards against conflicts of interests, among others. Through its platform services, Kraken allegedly, first, provides a marketplace that brings together the orders for securities of multiple buyers and sellers using established non-discretionary methods under which such orders interact and thus operates as an exchange. Secondly, exchanges or engages rather in the business of effecting securities transactions for the accounts of Kraken customers and thus operates as a broker. Thirdly, engages in the business of buying and selling securities for its own account without an applicable exception and thus operates as a dealer, and fourthly serves as an intermediary in settling transactions in crypto asset securities by cracking customers, and acts as a securities depository, and thus operates as a clearing agency. The link to the Securities and Exchange Commission press release is in the podcast description. Now we move to this week's roundup of cyber attack news, and I tell you, the cyber attack news, the sheer volume of it, just seems to get bigger and bigger every week. This week's news starts in uh, with Toyota, the car manufacturer, which has claimed that a cyber attack on its European and African financial services divisions has taken its systems and services offline. 
The Medusa ransomware group has claimed responsibility for the attack, requesting that the company has 10 days to meet the ransom demand of $8 million before information extracted in the attack is released to the dark web. No word by way of confirmation from Toyota as yet. Now, it's been quite a week for those combating cyber attacks in Ukraine following the Russian invasion. First, Viktor Zora, who oversees Ukraine's cyber defences and protections on critical information infrastructure, has been beamed into a cybersecurity conference in the Republic of Ireland this week where he warned that the nature of warfare is shifting, with Ukraine being something of a sandbox for the new warfare. As well as conventional warfare, with attacks from military hardware, the targets of warfare have become increasingly cyber-oriented, with cyber-attacks on critical infrastructure and other things necessary for successful defence. The cyber-attacks frequently happen alongside conventional warfare. There is a good deal in this, I think, and it's certainly the case that since the Israeli incursion into Gaza following the attacks by Hamas in early October, there has been an uptick in cyber-attacks against Israel. Indeed, this has been especially useful to Hamas and others, given the military hardware imbalance between the Israeli Defense Force and Hamas. I think it's reasonable to expect this form of hybrid warfare to become the norm in the future. The second Ukrainian cyber story is the news that, though he might have been beamed into Dublin for the cybersecurity conference I just mentioned, shortly afterwards Viktor Zora, together with Yuri Shetol, that's mangled that, present, that uh, pronunciation, who were deputy and head of the State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection of Ukraine, have been dismissed by the government on grounds of corruption, alleging embezzlement. Ukraine has gone hard on corruption in recent months as it seeks to source further funding for its response to the Russian invasion, as well as cleaning its systems and controls as part of its road to European Union accession. Seems that Ukraine is fighting on, I think, three fronts. One of them is a conventional military engagement. One is an internal cyber threat from those working within the organisation, from the temptation that comes from corruption. And the third is an external cyber threat from Russia and its allies. The scale of the problem for Ukraine is difficult enough to manage, as data released by Assistant Secretary for Financial Institutions at the US Department of the Treasury, Graeme Steele, revealed this week. Between January 2022 and September 2023, Ukraine suffered nearly 4,000 cyber attacks. Link to that story is in the podcast description. Just one more story linked to Ukraine before we move on, and that is the news that there has been a cyber attack on Sabena Engineering, which is a Belgian aerospace manufacturer. It has been supplying Ukraine with aerospace equipment and so on, and therefore it has been targeted, targeted by, it is understood, the Lockbit Gang which is the same perpetrator of the recent attack on the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China, as we reported in last week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Now, as I was just saying, when it comes to warfare and military action, there is typically an uptick in cyber attacks against the perpetrator. Well, several Israeli businesses were taken offline this week following an attack on website hosting company Signature IT. And certainly if you want to attack a number of companies, you just go for its website hosting company 
and you can take out a number of businesses just by attacking one entity. In the US, the Idaho National Laboratory, which is part of the US Department of Energy and a significant nuclear energy corporation, has been the victim of a cyber attack. The attack has resulted in the leak of sensitive personal information of employees onto the web. No group has claimed responsibility, but the breach remains under investigation by the relevant authorities. In the European Union, the European Central Bank, the ECB, has published the comments of an interview between Anneli Tourminen, Tourminen uh, who is a member of the supervisory board of the ECB, on the subject of the imminent cyber stress tests which are to be carried out on banks in the bloc in order to test, quotes, how banks respond to and recover from a cyber attack and how they resume normal business and to identify the bank's weak spots. Of the 109 banks under the direct supervision of the ECB, some 109, almost all of them will participate, with 28 of those participant banks being identified for enhanced testing, which will require the submission of more detailed information to the ECB. The ECB aims to, quote, cover a significant share of the euro area financial sector, ensuring an even geographical spread while also covering different business models and sizes. Full comments from that interview can be found at the link in the podcast description. In Australia, the government has published its 2023-2030 cyber security strategy, aiming, quotes, to improve our cyber security, manage cyber risks, and better support citizens and Australian businesses to manage the cyber environment around them. This will be achieved through six cyber shields. One, strong businesses and citizens. Two, safe technology. Three, world-class threat sharing and blocking. Four, protected critical infrastructure. Five, sovereign capabilities. Six, resilient region and global leadership. Alongside the strategy paper, the government will release a consultation document with the aim of producing legislative reform where there are gaps in existing laws and to amend the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act 2018. When that is released, the consultation will run until March 2024. Link to the press release, which contains links to the cyber strategy document, can be found in the podcast description. Now, as well as the joint action to be taken on sanctions, which I mentioned earlier, the British and Korean authorities have also turned attention to cyber attacks this week, issuing warnings about North Korean state-linked cyber operatives attacking software supply chains. As the press release from the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK provides, the actors have been observed leveraging zero-day vulnerabilities and exploits in third-party software to gain access to specific targets or indiscriminate organisations via their supply chains. The NCSC and the NIS consider these supply chain attacks to align and considerably help fulfil wider North Korean state priorities, including revenue generation, espionage and the theft of advanced technologies. The advisory provides technical details about the malicious activity, case studies of recent attacks emanating from North Korea, and advice on how organisations can mitigate supply chain compromises. 
linked to the publications from the National Cyber Security Centre in the UK and the South Korean National Intelligence Service can be found in the podcast description. And finally this week, the British Library has confirmed that the cyber attack which took many of its systems offline was indeed a ransomware attack and that it's currently being investigated by the National Cyber Security Centre, the Metropolitan Police Service and independent cybersecurity experts brought in by the Library. While the investigation is ongoing, the British Library confirmed that personal data had been stolen and that the uh, Resida ransomware group has claimed responsibility for the attack and posted information from the Library's HR files on the dark web. Well, that's it for this week's bumper edition of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.